This is Old Testament Premium Podcast number 30 on David. Warm greetings from Atlanta, from me and my family. And we're soon heading down to Orlando for a conference. Though most of the time lately, it seems I've been investing in my new book, my manuscript for Why Believe in God. More about that later on. Today we're going to be looking at a character who appears in the Bible in so many chapters, in so many shades of strength and weakness, we feel like we really know him well. And he's actually mentioned in the Bible by name more times than Jesus. In fact, David is mentioned over 1,100 times compared to Jesus at only 900 times. I'm not suggesting any theological point there. I'm just making the point that we do know a lot about David, just as we do about the son of David, the Messiah. And I'd like to begin by reading a passage that may not be very familiar to you. In fact, I would be impressed if anyone listening is able to identify it. Let me begin. My hands made a harp. My fingers fashioned a lyre. And who will declare it to my Lord? The Lord himself. It is he who hears. It is he who sent his messenger and took me from my father's sheep and anointed me with his anointing oil. My brothers were handsome and tall, but the Lord was not pleased with them. I went out to meet the Philistine, and he cursed me by his idols. But I drew his own sword, I beheaded him, and removed reproach from the people of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Well, certainly the thoughts should sound familiar. We have a youngest child who wasn't tall, not big in that respect, but he had a big heart for God, a shepherd with musical qualities, one who used his talent in a spiritual way, who was anointed as king, who killed a giant, who took a stand for the honor of God. Reminds us a bit of Phineas. But who is this? This is David. And what passage is it? It's Psalm 151. No, it's probably not part of your Bible. But you know, the Bible only represents a fraction of what the ancient Jews wrote and the ancient Christians. Many things that were written were inspired by biblical themes. And this particular psalm, number 151, which has survived in Syriac and in Latin and in Greek, is well known, uh, particularly um, in the Eastern churches. We've already learned a lot about this man, David, from our podcasts, which we've had on many people who knew him, like Samuel and, and uh, Saul, uh, Jonathan, or how about Ruth, his great-grandmother? David is an incredible man. When he is anointed, and I'd like to just read that passage, and then we'll quickly review the record for Samuel 16. We see, so Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now this is the familiar scene. One of the best-known verses in the Old Testament is probably 1 Samuel 16, 7, 
one that's probably good to memorize. But this is right after, and Samuel has been, well, in a worldly way, tempted to anoint Eliab. That was David's oldest brother, who was also tall, like the previous king, who failed after only one week in his position. David's not tall, but the scripture does say he looks nice. He has a fine appearance. In other words, it's no virtue to look good, uh, but it's not a vice to look uh, good either. Uh, it, it's really a non-issue. At any rate, Jesse brings all his sons in, and then in the presence of all the, the older brothers, some seven older brothers, David is anointed. We can only imagine how that made them feel, particularly when we parallel this with Joseph and his brothers, where he was the youngest, and yet he was chosen for service. We know from uh, later passages that they weren't particularly happy with him. You can trace this and see many parallels between Jesus and his brothers and David and his brothers. But I'll leave that for you to do another time. It also says that from this time on, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. Often in the Old Testament, even though the indwelling spirit was not given, the spirit comes on various judges, prophets, kings, various inspired individuals. And David is truly an inspired man. He enters the service of Saul in that same chapter. Then in the next chapter, chapter 17, is the famous encounter with Goliath. After that, he draws close to Jonathan, the son of Saul, chapter 18, who values his relationship with David more than he does the prospect of his becoming the next king. He begins a cat-and-mouse relationship with the mentally unstable and emotionally unpredictable Saul in that same chapter 18. Twice he has the opportunity to end the torment, to kill Saul, chapters 24 and 26, but David refuses. In between, in chapter 25, he had the opportunity to kill Nabal, uh, the husband of Abigail, who treated him very badly. He had not only the opportunity but the inclination, but fortunately he listens to Abigail's input. Ultimately, it's so bad, he hides among the Philistines, uh, posturing as one loyal to Achish, the king of the Philistines. He feigns loyalty in chapter 27. Ultimately, there's a Philistine raid and uh, David's possessions and wives, uh, people's families are, are taken off and they're in great distress. In fact, the people are thinking of stoning David and he turns to the Lord, chapter 30, verse 6. In the next uh, chapter, when Saul and Jonathan are killed on Mount Gilboa and the news reaches David, in, the, in 2 Samuel 1, there's, there's tremendous grief. David is very hurt. And this shows us something. He doesn't rejoice in the death of his enemy. He grieves. Eventually, the house of Saul, because Israel was quite divided along these lines, follows David. David reigns as king in Hebron for seven plus years. And then he reigns in Jerusalem. So he reigns over the united Israel for about 40 years. 2 Samuel 5.5. 5. When the ark finally comes back from the Philistines, 2 Samuel 6, David rejoices and dances with abandon. He wants to build a temple for God's name, 2 Samuel 7, but God says no. And it must have been hard because David had such a close relationship with the Lord. You'll read more about that in 1 Chronicles 28 in the parallel passage. David shows kindness to the house of Saul, not just at the funeral, but to the descendants of Jonathan. 
He wants to show kindness, and so he, in a special way, looks after Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, the one who was physically challenged, who had some kind of handicap in his feet. David also shows kindness to Nahash, the Ammonite, 2 Samuel 10. It's not reciprocated, though, and uh, David's temper burns. Bathsheba, yes, the infamous incident, 2 Samuel 11, which involves murder after adultery. David is confronted by Nathan, and he listens after hearing one of the parables of the Old Testament, chapter 12. We know that Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 51, uh, which is traditionally attributed to David at this time, was penned and, and shows the, the heart of a man who's truly taken rebuke uh, the way in, it was intended to be taken. He turns to the Lord. Even though David is humble, there is havoc in his family. We see in chapter 13 and following the incident with Amnon and Tamar. And ultimately Absalom takes revenge and kills Amnon. And then, then Absalom starts his own movement against his father, uh, which uh, nearly costs his life. And there are other rebellions, like the one led by Sheba, son of Bichri, and later uh, the one by Adonijah in 2 Kings 1. David has his mighty men, his 30 so-called, though, to the observant reader, we see there are 37. That's in 2 Samuel 23. But by the time 1 Chronicles 11 was written, the number of the mighty men is, is up to 53. So it's growing, it's increasing. David, thus we see, is a man who has a sensitive heart, who does great things, but sometimes does some really bad things. For example, the census that he takes in chapter 24. He's not relying on the Lord. He's putting his faith in numbers, a perennial temptation for those in leadership. This leads to a plague on the people of God, which is staved off only by a sacrifice. David goes through so many things, um, joys and heartaches, and ultimately, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, he dies. And according to Peter in Acts 2, uh, David's tomb was still there to that day. We don't know where it is today. No one knows. Interestingly, Peter also says David did not ascend to heaven. That's because the Bible shows that that, that privilege, ascending to heaven, has to wait until the second coming of Christ. Well, in the podcast notes, I've given you ideas for further study, which I hope will be useful particularly as you compare David to Jesus. But if we're going to sum up this man, what will we see? Well, we see one who is responsive before the word of God, not just Psalm 51, but also in Isaiah 66 too. And there, the one that the Lord esteems is the one who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at his word. What that means is not just someone who's humble or easygoing, agreeable, but he's someone who trembles at the word of God. The real test is not uh, do we get uh, uh, resentful or bothered or bitter if someone tries to give us input. The, the deeper question is how much do I respond to the word of God? On my own, when I read and meditate on it, when others give me input, maybe indirectly as in a sermon, how about face to face as with a true friend like Nathan coming and telling me what I need to hear. Hasn't that ever happened to you? Has someone maybe recently told you, you know, you may not realize this, but this is what's going on, or uh, more straight, you've really messed up. And David 
is responsible for the word of God. He's also a man who's magnanimous. There are times when his temper flares, but I think by nature he was much more of a forgiving soul. He was magnanimous. He's willing to, to let things slide. Of course, we see examples of him uh, being, uh, well, really slipping into grievous sin in Second Samuel 11 and 24. I bet you can find more examples. But he bounces back. He rebounds. His righteousness, or his lack thereof, deeply affect his own family. And so much of what goes on, we can say, what a dysfunctional family. I think we can really only make sense of it, reading it back into the actions of David and seeing how they affected the rest. And then, well-known verse in the New Testament, Acts 13.22, we read this. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so, I want to be like David. Now, can we return to that Psalm 151, the one that survived in Greek, Latin, and Syriac. But did you know that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, in cave number 11, manuscript 5, which has the Psalms, also included this psalm, and it's a longer version. So let me read this again. And I'm not saying that the psalm is necessarily inspired or that it came directly from David. We don't know that. Still, let me read it. Smaller was I than my brothers, and younger than the sons of my father. Yet he appointed me shepherd for his sheep, and ruler over his kids. My hands have made a flute, and my fingers a lyre, and I have given glory to Yahweh. I said in my soul, Oh, that the mountains would bear witness for me, and oh, that the hills would tell. The trees have taken away my words, and the sheep my works. For who can tell and who can speak and who can recount my works? The Lord of all saw. God of all, he heard and he has heeded. He sent his prophet to anoint me, Samuel, to make me great. My brothers went out to meet him, handsome of form and handsome of appearance, tall in their height, handsome with their hair. Them did Yahweh God not choose. But he sent and took me from behind the sheep and anointed me with holy oil, and he appointed me leader for his people and ruler over the sons of his covenant. David, a man after God's own heart. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the true son of David, the David who was expected to return again, Ezekiel 34. David, who was viewed as the king who would reign over the golden age of Israel in the future. What do we learn about God in this particular study? I see four things. First, God knows we will slip. He's looking for our willingness to rebound, to come back to him. God is looking for that quality of heart, that repentance. He knows we're going to slip. But what do we do when we do slip? Jeremiah 8.4. Secondly, we respond to God through his word, to input for our lives based on his word often channeled through others. So the test of a real response to God are not the religious feelings we have. It's how we respond to input when others give it to us and it's based on God's word. That's the test. Number three, 
God forgives us. But still, there are consequences to our sin. Often I hear people say, when God forgives, he forgets. Uh, Certainly that's not true. Um, In the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God remembers and forgets, um, it's simply describing uh, the way the Lord takes into account uh, what we have done. And if he forgets, it's not that he has a mental lapse. It's simply that he's not holding it against us in our relationship. However, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. And to blithely behave as though, well, I've confessed it to God so that everything's going to be fine now, that's not only unrealistic, it's unbiblical. Because sin does have consequences. Even though the sin is wiped away and in a literary kind of way, God, God has forgotten it. That is, he's not bringing it up. Of course, he remembers And in our lives, of course, there are consequences. And fourthly, God will use a man or woman of deep conviction. This is the kind of man David was from his youth to his old age. God will use a man or woman of deep conviction. And that means as we follow the word of God, as we have conviction, God will use you and me. And that is very good news.